So, second day. <laughs> Seems longer, huh? <laughs> Days are surprisingly full uh, when you're working at being present. It's just amazing the kind of, if we look back at the day, and just how many experiences you know, we've been th- gone through in just one day uh, when we're not living quite as unconsciously or disconnected. Um, you know, in spite of how you might feel that your practice is unfolding, uh, I would say I'd, I'd, I'd put money on the fact that um, there have been more moments of mindfulness today than, than in your ordinary life, you know, under these kinds of conditions. You know, so often we, we recognize those moments when we're not being mindful. You know, and actually when we recognize we're not being mindful, we're being mindful. So there's a lot of moments to be mindful of being not mindful. Uh, so tonight um, I wanted to talk about discovering ease uh, on this path of insight, this path of awakening. So what are we awakening to? You know, the Buddha was known as the awakened one. That's the Buddha. The awakened one. And of course, that's what we're doing. We're doing the same practice. We're engaging in the same work that he uh, developed in his own practice. What we're doing is we're developing a very different way of being, a very different way of living our life. We're awakening to a, a, a fundamentally different relationship to the here and now, to the present moment. We're moving into a a relationship where it's possible to feel connected to what you're doing, whether it's connected to your body, whether it's connected to the activities that we're engaging in throughout the day, whether it's connected to the walking. And tomorrow we'll be expanding. Many people have asked in the groups about not just working with the anchor, but beginning to take other experiences that, of course, are arising. Um, throughout the day, experiences like reactions that we're having, or resistance, or desire, or emotions, or moods. So we can begin to expand that field of practice to begin to include all aspects of our experience. And what we're cultivating, as Susan talked about last night, is not so much a a knowing of the present moment, or the knowing of ourselves uh, through the lens of like a looking at from a distance at ourselves, you know, like stepping outside of ourselves and looking at ourselves and kind of feeling detached about that particular experience. But really what we're developing is an intimacy. We're getting closer uh, to ourselves. We're getting closer to what's real. We're getting closer to what our actual experience is. And that's what this practice is designed to do. It's not designed to have a particular experience. You know, some momentary experience that you can cling on to and take home with you and you know, feel great about. But it's much more about understanding oneself, getting to know one's habits, getting to know uh, what works in our life, awakening to what works and what doesn't. And when we talk about what works and what doesn't, it's not in the framework of success or failure. What 
the framework is, is what leads to liberation, what's working, what qualities free us, what kind of approach do we take in each moment of our life that leads to freedom, and what's not working is what um, causes or perpetuates our suffering. And that's the lesson. Those are the lessons that emerge when we begin to pay close attention to what our experience is. Those are the kinds of things we learn. So we're awakening from confusion. Very few people would begin meditation if there wasn't some awareness that um, we didn't have all the answers. That there's a certain amount of confusion. That a lot of the things that we've learned along the way, some of them have been valuable, they, you know, language and work skills and uh, lots of uh, thinking process can be extremely valuable when it's guided by wisdom and mindfulness. So we've learned a lot along the way, but we also haven't learned some very fundamental skills, some very fundamental truths about our life on this planet. We're also awakening. In many ways, this path of awakening, insight, it's 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 kind of got two sides to it. One is that we're unlearning. It's a process of unlearning. It's a process of letting go of so much of the accumulated preconceptions that, we've, that we have, that we hold very dearly, and that we live through. You know, the preconception of who you are, what's possible. The preconception about what's going to lead to happiness and what isn't. And as we age and as we develop more awareness, we begin to see that those things really haven't, uh, they're not that reliable. And so the practice is, in many ways, it's, it's letting go of all this accumulated assumptions and views and opinions and preconceptions, and instead embarking on a journey of exploration, of discovery, of trying to take a look at our present moment, our life, our bodies, our emotions, our minds, in a fresh way free of all sorts of ideas about how things are supposed to be, how they should be, how they shouldn't be. You know, our brains are just loaded with ideas about how we should be, how we shouldn't be, how we could be. And so we need to make our way through that process, begin to see into it, see through the illusion of a lot of the stories that we've accumulated along the way begin to dispel the misconceptions about what leads to freedom and what doesn't. We're awakening to powers that are within us. You know, so, uh, you know, it's, I don't know if tragic is the right word, but it's what's coming to mind right now, is that the human being has enormous potential. And yet we're scratching on the surface. 
you know, we're caught up in the world of thought. And there's so much below the surface that's there already. In fact, that's what practice is doing. It's not about manufacturing. It's not about creating. It's about uncovering and discovering what's already there. And to do that, we have to clear up what the Buddha said was our ignorance, our delusion, our confusion about what leads to happiness and what doesn't. And so we have to take a look at the unhappiness. We have to look at whatever arises, both the joys and the sorrows. The moments when we feel faith or confidence in ourselves, and moments when we rack with self-doubt and self-criticism. So when we look at what we're doing in this kind of a framework, it's a little more than just what happened in your last sitting. You know, we often think of our framework for our practice. First of all, so often it's within the framework of success and failure, which by the way, there's no such thing as a successful meditator and there's no such thing as a failing meditator. That framework doesn't really apply to the work we're doing. Sometimes we can be clear and sometimes we're not. But it really is a very fundamentally different framework that we're working with. So when we look at this kind of a framework of awakening, we're we're asking ourselves to do something very, not only different, but challenging. The Buddha described the path of awakening, the path of awareness, the path of insight, as we're going up against the stream. What I think he meant by that is that Downstream, going with the stream is our conditioning, our habits, our preconceptions, all the ideas that we're carrying, that we've picked up along the way, that haven't really led us to freedom, that haven't really led us to peace. And so often, we human beings, we go that route because it's easier in a lot of ways. It's not easier in the long run because there's a lot of suffering that comes with that. But it does take a certain commitment. It takes valuing questioning our conditioning, questioning that, taking a look, seeing if, if, it, if there's another way. Is there another way to be in this body? Is there another way of relating to our minds? Is there another way of being on this planet? Is there another way of being in relationship with each other? Well, of course there is. Of course there is. So while it's against the stream, the almost irony or contradiction of, of that process of against the stream is it's really it's very much a process of relaxing and settling into the here and now. And that's going up against the stream. Because the stream is our thoughts. Preoccupied, cut up, taking our thoughts as true, taking our thoughts as reality, identifying with our thoughts, taking our thoughts as self. And to begin to relate to that process, this mind-body process, to begin to relate to it with what else but mindfulness. Mindfulness. 
shining the light of mindfulness on our moment-to-moment experience is fundamentally different than being lost in our moment-to-moment experience, caught in our moment-to-moment experience, unconscious of what our moment-to-moment experience is. The Buddha the Buddha's The Buddha said that whatever we don't see, we practice. Whatever we don't see, we practice. So if we don't if we don't wake up to the habits of mind that torment us, that aren't working in our life, we're bound to practice those habits. And if we practice mindfulness, as Susan said, each moment of mindfulness is nurturing our capacity for another moment of mindfulness. So we're practicing qualities that lead to clarity. So why is mindfulness so powerful in terms of nurturing uh, or freeing ourselves from this contraction that we often find ourselves in, this inner fight, this inner conflict, this struggle? First of all, the fact that it doesn't impose any kind of judgment. In other words, mindfulness is I, I see it as a form of intelligence. It allows us to meet the here and now without imposing any idea on that experience. So in other words, if you have a knee pain and you're being mindful, mindful mindfulness isn't saying, I wish I wasn't having that knee pain or why uh, there's something wrong with me. Uh, no, mindfulness is letting us know that there is a knee pain. <laughs> you know, It's letting us know what is happening. Yeah. And then it's up to us to discern what the wise response is. But that's a very powerful force. That's a very powerful form of intelligence that just allows us to have and know our experience without fixing, figuring out, analyzing it, changing, problem solving. It just lets us know what our moment-to-moment experience is. And so it's very open-hearted. There's no judgment about sleepiness. There's no judgment about restlessness. It just allows us a much more intimate relationship with that experience because it isn't judging it. It's simply letting us know what that moment-to-moment experience is. And as mindfulness gets stronger, we get closer to the experience. We experience it actually more fully. And some of us can see that in this practice, like say with restlessness and boredom. You know, sitting in this kind of environment when we're practicing mindfulness, sometimes the restlessness can just seem so overpowering but the reality is restlessness is often driving our life. But when we stop and take a look, we can see just how strong and how powerful it is. That's helpful information. Unless we see it, we're destined to practice it. We're subject to it. Mindfulness creates the conditions for what's unconscious, for what's not seen, to be seen. So each moment of mindfulness transforms consciousness. Each, in fact, each moment of mindfulness is an act of freedom. It's free of the burden of the past. Our thoughts are not, quite often. You might notice that our thoughts are deeply conditioned by the past. Mindfulness is not conditioned by the past. It meets the here and now with that quality of freshness. 
And in that, there's a space. It opens up a space. Just to be. Just to be with. Even if it's one moment, it creates that space. And so we can explore more deeply. We can keep paying attention. You know, we've got that door that's opening, allowing us to take a look a little bit more closely, a little less judgmentally, to sort of see how things are expressing themselves. You know, if we look at a knee pain and we actually pay attention for a few moments, we might learn something from it. And as we begin to open the practice up, it's the same with the mind and emotions and moods. If we can just pay attention from one moment to the next, we might discover something very new that will free us of all sorts of ideas and preconceptions and judgments about that particular experience. Each moment of mindfulness is also a moment of non-identification. There's a strong conditioned tendency in the mind to claim experiences, particularly, well, body, the mind, thoughts, emotions, moods, to claim them as me or mine, to make a self out of them. Mindfulness allows us to begin to take the things that we tend to claim, like say a particular emotion or mental state, and to actually take it as an object of mindfulness. That's a moment of non-identifying. We're actually seeing things as they are. We do, we do, it's, it's confusion in the mind when we define ourselves by these changing experiences. One time I met with someone um, in an interview. And they, I knew them pretty well. And so there was enough trust to kind of do what I, what I was about to say. And they come in and they say, well, I'm, I'm really an anxious person. I'm an anxious person. I said, no, you're not. They're kind of looking at me, you know, like, what do you know? Uh, I'm living with this, you know, a lot. Of course I'm an anxious person. I said, no. I said, I definitely believe you completely that you're experiencing a lot of anxiety. But don't define yourself by it. Don't limit yourself by it. Sure, there may be a lot of anxiety, there may be a lot of sleepiness, there may be a lot of restlessness, there may be a lot of boredom. But that's not who you are. It's a momentary experience. It's changing from one moment to the next. But there's a strong tendency to claim it as me or mine, to make it a self out of it. And we torment ourselves with that. We torment ourselves with emotions that might be painful. And then we then not only is it just a painful experience, but it's a painful experience and there's even more suffering that we pile on by saying, you know, that's me. You know, I'm responsible, that's me, that's my, that's who I am. So one moment of mindfulness of an emotion is a moment of freedom. We're beginning to see it for what it is and then we can begin to explore how it expresses itself. So when we begin to take up these habits of mind, many of the habits of mind that torment us, like self-judging, self-criticism, resistance, aversion, 
clinging. Anybody familiar with any of those? Any of them make the list of what you've been dealing with? Uh, yeah, sure. Habits of mind. That's what we're encountering in practice. You know, and sometimes I think it yeah, can be, it's difficult, it's challenging to take a look at yourself and to see, you know, Buddha described it as a wild monkey, monkey mind, you know, just the chaos. You come in thinking you're really smart and intelligent and you start watching your mind and you really see you're really not that smart, you're not that intelligent and you keep having the same thoughts over and over again. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's definitely an education. Uh, a colleague of mine describes it as self-knowing. It's getting to know yourself. It's tremendous freedom in getting to know yourself. And to get, getting to know yourself with loving attention. You know, with compassion and loving kindness. You know, getting to know what, kind, you know what habits we have. You know, is there a lot of self-doubt or a lot of self-criticism? And instead of reinforcing it you know, with all sorts of ideas about shouldn't be there, it should be there, or why am I having that experience, all of that, all those kind of reactions and judgments, uh, to just acknowledge and recognize, yeah, self-judging is happening. It's a habit. I remember when I, in my early years of practice, I, I'm getting to this in a minute around attitude, but uh, an effort, you know, like um, a real striver. Uh, in practice, you know, really a lot of determination and also a lot of tension behind that determination. And um, I, wor- I spent a lot of time working with an anchor, the breath. And I do these longish retreats, three month retreats, a few of them here. And, you know, after a while you've been practicing, you do get, you know, that long, you do get a lot quieter and you do get much more concentrated, much more focused, and tension gets more stable if you're working with a primary object. But even in, with all that, the attention does wander. So I would notice it's wandering and then I would bring it back. But there was a quality to all of that, that, that there was something in there that um, didn't feel free. And so I paid a little bit closer attention and what I noticed was that every time my mind wandered, I saw that with aversion, failure, self-judgment, momentary, self-judgment, back to the anchor. It, it was like that all the time. It was like the mind would wander. You can imagine how much aversion and self-judgment there is there because of course the mind is wandering. So every time it wandered, I'd notice it was wandering I would have aversion to it. I would immediately assess that I did something wrong, that my practice wasn't going on. It was very momentary. And then I would uh, judge myself for it. And then I would come back to the anchor. And a lot of that was unconscious. I, didn't, I had not a clue that that was going on. All I noticed was the attention wandered and I brought it back. But as the mind got quieter, I began to see that habit. And once I began to recognize the self-judgment, I began to see it in other places whether it was at lunchtime, whether it was standing in line, or whether it was for when I was going for my interview, or, or you know, whatever it was, so many situations I began to see that that was a pretty tenacious habit that was going on. And I was not aware of it. I was aware of it some of the time, but not as much as it was happening. And so waking up to that was tremendously freeing, because then when I was practicing, I started doing the practice that we're doing now, kind of, in a way. I began to include self-judgment, practice we'll be doing, I began to take that as an object of mindfulness. So 
my mind would wander, I would be aware of the aversion, I would be aware of the self-judgment, and then I would be back to the anchor. But by being aware of it, what happened was, is it all began to soften. It began to lose its power. And lo and behold, eventually my mind would wander, I'd notice it, and I would come back. And that was really simply the power of mindfulness. I couldn't tell myself, I could tell myself, don't judge myself, but that would probably be another judgment. Uh, So, you know, kind of telling yourself a story isn't always the best way out. Uh, But just the power of mindfulness, what it did was it deconditioned. That's the power of mindfulness. Deconditioned that habit. Because I was no longer practicing it. I was practicing my awareness of it. And that's how habits change. Now, what paves the way for mindfulness? This unwinding, this awakening, this freeing. Well, mindfulness, Susan mentioned, mindfulness paves the way for mindfulness. So each moment of mindfulness creates the conditions for another moment of mindfulness. But the longer I practice, the more I see how crucial and how significant one's attitude is. Not only one's attitude towards oneself, but one's attitude in practice. So I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about attitude and some of the things that were taught to me by another teacher I'll get to in a minute. But um, things that I discovered just through through my own practice and, and applying it. About 10 years ago, I met this teacher from another tradition. He was a meditation master. And really, the moment I I met him, for some reason, I just knew I had something to learn. And I could also tell um, that he was a lot more enlightened than I was. Uh, So, you know, it it was crystal clear to me. Um, But also, there was just that karma, you know, where you just resonate with somebody. And he was Chinese. And uh, I actually met him over here at the study center and I had a strong connection. So I started doing retreats with him. His name was Sheng Yen. He passed away about uh, five years ago. And, uh, you know, it's a different tradition. You know, it's a Chan tradition that precursor to Zen Buddhism, Zen practice. Um, and he taught this practice called silent illumination. I'm not going to go into it, but it was a practice that's not that different than this in some ways. Um, but um, <clears throat> so I went on retreats and, and I'll just recount a little bit about my experience on this first retreat. Um, they had 10 day retreats and they're really quite different than this one. Um, wake up is at 4, bedtime is at 10. Um, all, all the practice that you do, in fact, every moment of your life, you're in a group. Uh, practicing. So you're eating, walking, sitting, doing these exercises, sleeping. Uh, I slept in a a meditation hall with 40 other guys on the floor. Uh, You can only imagine the chaos at night uh, with folks dreaming and stuff and, you know, shouting and having really bad dreams. And most of them were in Chinese. 
So I was, I was actually grateful for that because I, I, I really didn't want to know what was going on. And I'd just try to find a corner somewhere in the hall and sleep and then you'd wake up. The bathroom was right on the side of the hall. You'd wash up and you'd be, you were right there for the practice. You set up the cushions, you were ready to go. Um, and they woke you up at 4 o'clock in the morning by smashing a wooden hammer on a wooden block uh, within a few feet of your head. <laughs> so there wasn't these like nice, you know, boom. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was excruciating to hear that sound at 4 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, maybe you slept four hours or something like that, you know. And, and I, I'm not really into like, all group activities, you know, like I like my privacy, I like my space, you know, an insight practice, you know, you can, you can find that, you can do individual walking, you know, uh, you know, you need to take a little nap, go for it, take a nap, uh, not there. If you don't show up, they come and get you. No, I'm not joking. But they're kind. They do it in an incredibly sweet, kind way. They see it as helping you, which is interesting. It's not like a police state. It's like, oh, there must be something wrong. Let's go find him and bring him back to the group. <laughs> you know, and really well intended. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, quite frankly, it was a quite an adjustment for me. Um, and it was a lot of work, and and there was, as you can imagine, quite a bit of resistance to this. I'm used to this style of practice, and this was really quite, quite different. I'm really kind of clashing with my personality type or whatever. Uh, my preferences. It certainly wasn't my preferences. But the teachings were tremendous, profound, deep, and, and uh, I was really there for that. Um, but I also had to surrender to the form because that was part of the teachings. You know, the sitting, the method, all of that was part of the teaching. Um, anyways, he'd come in like, I remember he came in like on the third night. And he would start out, he'd say, you know, retreats are like a vacation. They're like a vacation. Susan mentioned yesterday that they don't feel like a vacation, do they? So he'd say it's vacation, and I, the first thought I would say is forget it. This is definitely not a vacation. <laughs> it, it is a retreat, and it's valuable and all that, but don't describe it as a vacation. <laughs> and so, and he actually quite often brought up that analogy of, of it being a vacation, and I didn't really understand what the point was of that because it didn't feel like a vacation. And then I realized, you know, before the end of the retreat, I realized what he was pointing to was our attitude in the practice itself. That if we can let go and work with our expectations of how things are supposed to be, what happens? What happens to the mind when we begin to practice without any expectation of results, without attaching to any particular agenda at all? What happens to the mind is that it relaxes. It relaxes into the present because it's not struggling so much. It's not imposing anything on the now. practicing without expectations. 
it's so different than what we're used to. You know, when we talk about putting effort out, you know, it seems natural to have expectations. You know, to sort of, if you do something, there should be a result. Okay? And there are clearly benefits and fruit from this practice. But when we practice with that notion of what, you know, something else should be happening, this should be happening by now, you know, so often when, when we have um, the, these group interviews, it happens several times today, and, you know, it happens all the time actually, um, when, when, we're, when we're reporting like, how this retreat is going, almost inevitably, and don't take this as a judgment or criticism because we all do it, um, it's, well, my last retreat, you know, it was really, uh, I had a lot of energy, and it was really quiet. In this retreat, it's like I'm really just dealing with sleepiness, and it's the second day, I don't get it. You know, I don't get it. And so there it is. Like the first retreat went this way, and then there's an expectation about this retreat. So then it's now, it's not you just working with sleepiness, but you're working with sleepiness with that frame of reference that your other retreat wasn't like that, and so this shouldn't be like that. And it can work the other way around. I've talked to many people who have had extremely difficult, you know, like just, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, challenging energies like sleepiness and restlessness and, and all of that. And yet they really benefited from working with it going through the retreat. So they come in to the next retreat and they're, they're expecting it to be just as bad or worse. <laughs> and it's actually, there's a lot of equanimity and a lot of balance and they're in a really different place and, and they're surprised by that. And then they think there's something wrong. <laughs> it's really funny. It's like we can always think there's something wrong, even when it's going well. Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny what the mind will do. And so we have these expectations and we impose. And so we might think, okay, um, boy, it sounds good. Can I just practice without expectations and just be with whatever's happening? And that means being very allowing of whatever's arising and working with it, you know, with mindfulness. Um, being allowing doesn't mean you're resigned to it. It means there's an attitude of receptive, receptivity, that interest, that, that um, uh, when something arises, you take it up with your awareness practice, that non-judging attention, being allowing. I just lost my train of thought. And so I'm practicing being allowing of that fact. Uh, let's see, where I was, I, I was in a, a state of tension, Shang uh, Yan, vacation. Evaluate, reinforce habits, like, oh, success. Moving right along. Okay, we'll skip a bunch. Um, oh, no, good, I got it. Um, so the idea of um, expectations. Um, and say being free of expectations. And maybe it doesn't sound possible, maybe it doesn't even sound like a good idea, but let's just say um, what I want to present and what I want to say is that if we cling to an expectation or we cling to an agenda, it's a setup. In this particular situation, it's a setup. It's very disempowering because what it does is it puts us in conflict with what's actually happening. Okay? That comparing, evaluating, all of that uh, is very disempowering. Um, it undermines us in, in a lot of ways. So 
fortunately, there's a practice around that. You know, there's a practice around working with things as they are, right? Which is what we're doing. And for most of us, we cling to expectations. We cling to particular agendas. And so the practice is then to begin to be aware of how those expectations, when we're attaching to them, how do they express themselves in our practice? How do these expectations, what are the signals that we're clinging to some idea that something else should have been happening or should be happening or shouldn't be happening? How can we recognize that energy when it's there? Because oftentimes it's very unconscious. You know, we might be becoming more and more conscious of some of these energies, but oftentimes we don't really see them. So what I want to say is that whenever we experience a form of resistance in the mind, whenever we experience disappointment, whenever we experience discouragement or frustration or despair, there's an expectation underneath that. There's an expectation underneath that. So with self-judgment, for instance, there's an expectation that you shouldn't be having that experience. When there's disappointment, there's an expectation that you shouldn't be, you know, like we can feel really disappointed and discouraged and feeling sleepy, having a lot of sleepiness, right? That's part of the suffering around sleepiness is how we relate to that sleepiness. And so often, if it goes on and on and on, I know this very well because I've worked a lot with it, when, when it's very easy to feel discouraged and disappointed and really sometimes angry and impatient and frustrated, all of the above, and, and self-judging too. And that is a signal that there's an expectation that that sleepiness shouldn't be happening. And it's, that's what's causing the suffering. The sleepiness is not causing the suffering. It's not inherent suffering in feeling sleepy. Have you ever felt really sleepy on the cushion and then gone to bed and not be sleepy? Sure. There's nothing, nothing, there's no, there's nothing wrong with feeling sleepy. It's but how we relate to it or hold it is where the suffering is. And that's what the practice is about. The practice is not about not feeling sleepy ever or not ever feeling restless or not ever feeling bored or always being interested. It's about learning about how you relate to those different states when they come up. And when we open the field of attention up tomorrow, that's what we're looking at. As Susan said, it's looking at your relationship because it's our relationship to this phenomena that's causing us suffering, that's causing all sorts of problems for us. There's nothing inherently wrong with boredom. In fact, I taught a class one year. Uh, and it was working with different mental states. And we would take up one, one mental state for a week or two and, and try to bring more awareness to, into our daily life with it. And then we did the go-around at the end. And, and I, I said, you know, which, which, which like, mental state did you find the most interesting to work with? And it was surprising. At least a third of the class said boredom. Think about that. Boredom was the most interesting state of mind. Because... <laughs> We don't know anything about boredom in a lot of ways, do we? we don't, it's hard to describe what boredom is, and it's subjective. It's very subjective what boredom is. So when we feel bored, see if you can make room. I'm getting to that now. Make room 
for the boredom itself. What do I mean by making room? Making room is not imposing an expectation, not imposing this idea that you're not supposed to be bored, but let's make room for this experience. Let's see if we can allow ourselves to have that experience. It's really an investigative question. It's not telling you, please allow for boredom. It's a question of asking yourself, is it possible? Look at it with some interest. Okay, boredom. You know, boredom rules our life. When we feel bored, we move out of it because there's something that, about it that's uncomfortable for us. And we, tr- we have a strong tendency to move away from discomfort. But that generates a lot of suffering for us. It really limits our life. We need to develop a capacity to be with discomfort. Not in some kind of masochistic way, but it's part of life. And how we relate to discomfort determines how much we suffer. So when boredom arises, can I make room? It's an investigative question. Can I make room for this restlessness? Can I make room for this physical pain? It doesn't mean that you can't stand or stretch or, or respond to it, but it's a question of attitude. Is it, can we allow ourselves to actually have, think about this, it's, can we actually allow ourselves to have our actual experience? It seems like we should be able to do that rather than be so caught up in not having the, in not allowing ourselves to have that actual experience. But it takes training to do that. That's the point. That's uphill. That's against the stream, is allowing ourselves to have these experiences. And when we can make room, we can learn from the experience. It moves us into a much more receptive mode. It allows us to experience it more fully, but to experience it with awareness. So when we ask this question, when we encounter something, like, can I make room? There's going to be times when the honest answer would be no. I really can't make room for the sleepiness. It's the seventh time I've felt this in the seven sittings, however, I don't count them. You might, but I don't. Um, you know, like, I, I keep feeling sleepy a lot, you know? And, uh, you know, so what's arising around that? That's what we want to do. Is we want to generate some curiosity. Like what, you know, some kind of affectionate curiosity. Like, okay, so we're feeling sleepy a lot. Like what's the nature of sleepiness? I can open my eyes, I can stand. You know, wise effort is taking care of yourself and finding out kind of what is skillful and what isn't. And sometimes folks come in to the groups and they say, well, you know, what's skillful and what isn't? Well, you know, it's kind of up to you to discern that. Quite honestly, nobody can really give you that ultimate answer. But there are some guidelines For instance, if you ask that question, can I make room for the sleepiness, and you get a no, so what arises, that no, what's the nature of that no? The nature of that no is resistance. Could be in the form of self-judgment, discouragement, despair, self-condemning, it could be a number of forms of resistance. Okay, so then the next question is, is can I make room for the resistance? Can I allow myself just to hate this experience? You know, can I allow myself to have all this doubt about what I'm doing or what my, what my meditation practice is about. Well, of course, you, you can allow it. But be aware of it. Be mindful. Take it as something to be aware of rather than something to invest in. We invest in our resistance. It's okay to have resistance. It's part of how we've been trained to relate to painful experiences. So when there's resistance to emotions, fine. But be mindful of the resistance. 
in this practice of insight, to me, it's one of the strengths of this particular mode of practice is that it really does encourage that kind of investigation or that kind of sustained looking at a pleasant or unpleasant experience arises. We're aware of it, but we're also paying attention to how we're relating to it. And we're taking that as an object of awareness, something to take a look at and understand. Okay, um, just about out of time. Uh, I want to just take a couple minutes uh, to go over. Uh, I'll go over just a couple minutes on this talk. I lost track. Wise effort. I wanted to just say a few words about that. And it's they all kind of like it's 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 beautiful actually when we begin to understand the Dharma and we begin to see how things support each other and how they interrelate, uh, and how connected they are. Um, you know, how connected mindfulness is to wisdom, and, and how um, attitude, how the attitude of making room, then, you know, the attitude of being more allowing, or nurturing that attitude, how that then uh, frames and drives the kind of effort that we make in practice. Because if we're cultivating this capacity, this attitude, and it's not impossible to develop an attitude like this, you know, that is more open-hearted. You know, it really it's a question of practicing it and reminding ourselves when we encounter challenges and resistance. You know, asking yourself, just open to that one second possibility that you might be able to hold this. You know, may be able to give it a little bit of room and allow yourself to have that experience, even if it's just for a few seconds. You know? So that then influences and informs the kind of effort that we make because now our effort doesn't have to be guided by fixing or figuring out or problem solving. You know, our effort now is about showing up to the here and now without that whole notion of fixing, without what the Buddha described as the suffering of becoming. You know, we're always becoming, you know, becoming better meditators. Well, that's a form of suffering. It's being with that we're learning to do. That's where the freedom is, is found. So we can, we can have tremendous insights and be very liberated when restlessness is arising or sleepiness is arising or any experience because it's how we're relating to it. If we relate to it with wisdom and compassion, we'll be free. If we relate to it unconsciously with a lot of habitual reactions, then we'll suffer. If we bring awareness to our habitual reactions, we move towards freedom because we're no longer reinforcing that. So the effort, wise effort is showing up and it's a, the quality is the quality of the effort is really different than a lot of the effort that we generally make in our life, uh, where it's very achieve, achievement oriented, where the where the framework is success or failure. The kind of effort we're talking about doesn't have that particular uh, framework. Um, it's about a balanced effort. It's about learning to be gentle yet stick to itness, perseverance. So it, you, one really does need a certain degree of commitment and perseverance. And along the way, we're, with that perseverance, it's not necessarily grim. We're developing patience and more loving kindness towards ourselves in that perseverance. Uh, so it's this gentle perseverance. Um, and oftentimes what it is, is it's a balanced effort between the extreme of striving on one hand and the extreme of being too lax. 
And what we want to find is that middle ground, that relaxed effort, you know, that's, that's making an effort to show up and to be awake and to be aware of what our experience is, but also not the effort to become or to fix or to, or to make something happen or manufacture something. Uh, so it's not that, that busy kind of trying to make something happen or improve or all of that. It's trying to get to know our experience with loving attention. And so it can be, this effort can be expressed in any moment of time. And so for us, you know, it's a wisdom path, you know, uh, discovering what wise effort is, is, is a wisdom practice. There's no formula. Uh, you have to look at yourself and we have to get to know ourselves and to see kind of what our habits are and what our tendencies are. For instance, if you're a real striver in everyday life and you're a real go-getter type A, um, when you sit down, you may find yourself type A-ing your way through your meditation and really striving a lot and creating a lot of tension. And then if you're someone who kind of gives up a lot, you know, who like the first time you encounter something difficult, you lose interest or, you know, you just constantly undermining yourself and not, you know, not, not really sticking with something for very long because it may feel too difficult. And then, then you might be a little bit on the lack side. And so if you know that, then what we want to do, and that can, be, that can be connected to posture, it can be connected to showing up at the hall, it can be connected to the walking practice, it can be connected to the effort to be present when you're walking around. We want to move towards the middle, non-striving, but also not lax, not indulging in fantasy because time may go by faster. You know, it's okay to be aware of fantasy, but indulging in it is being too lax. It's not the best use of your time here. It's not to judge fantasy, but it's to be take it as material for mindfulness. Material to, to awaken and discover something much more deep, something much more reliable, something much more lasting, something much more unconditioned. Thanks. So let's just sit for a minute. Thanks.